Amen. Just a simple question to start off. How did we get here? It's a funny question, but I was thinking about it. How did we get here? And some of you might answer that question by saying, well, I, you know, I got out of bed, I got dressed, had breakfast, got in the car, uh, went out the main gate, took a right, you know, and you might give directions as to exactly how you got here physically. But, but that's not what I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about how we got here. How I mean, Did you enjoy just praising the Lord this morning? I mean, wasn't that great? Don't you, I, you wouldn't be here, I think, knowing most of you. You probably wouldn't be here uh, if you didn't enjoy coming, if you didn't get something out of it. There's a reason we gather here. There's a reason we do what we do. And I just began to ask myself as I read these passages, how did we get here? And what, what was involved with us being able to freely come and gather in Christ's name here as we do today as the church of Jesus Christ? And we have in front of us the answer to that question, Jesus' instructions to the first apostles. There are two types of people in the world. And maybe you'll, in your own mind, qualify yourself as one or the other. I believe there are pioneers and there are settlers. Which one would you consider yourself to be? Are you a pioneer or are you a settler? One is not worse than the other. Please understand, I'm not trying to say that one is better or greater than the other. They're just different personalities. Maybe we have in here some pioneers. Are, are, Are any pioneers in here? Maybe you've pioneered something. Maybe you've been the voice or you've been the one that you've been engaged in this new activity or this new group. You initiated the parent-teacher organization for your school because it didn't exist. Or you stepped out and, and started a new club or a new group or took your family in a new direction or you were the first one in your family to go to college. Or you know, It could be many kinds of things that you pioneered. Helga, my wife, maybe this is new information, she pioneered an SPCA when she lived in Asheboro, North Carolina. There was no chapter of the SPCA there, and she started it. She was pioneered there. And, and maybe others of you would be able to share stories of pioneering in other areas. What is a pioneer? Uh, maybe you've seen that person with a pioneer type of spirit. They're just adventurous. They're just gutsy. And they look at a path, and they say, well, I know everybody's going down that path, but I wonder what's over here. I wonder what's down this road. And it's a lot of work to be a pioneer, isn't it? I mean, you have to cut out new territory. You have to cut through brush and trees. Oftentimes, you have to do it alone when you're a pioneer. You face dangers and difficulties. And then once once you have cleared the trail, then the settlers get to come along and and settle, settle down on it, settle into it, build on it. What you have tilled up, then as a pioneer, the settlers come and they plant and grow and protect and so the pioneers and the settlers work hand in hand the pioneers lay the foundation the settlers build on it sometimes pioneers are seen as rebels crazies fringe wackos (laughs) think of the pioneers in our country lewis and clark and many many untold others that said you know i wonder what's that direction you know Every area of life has its pioneers, technology, space travel, science, medicine, and the church has its pioneers, Martin Luther, William Carey, Jim Elliott. And what we are looking at here this morning are some of the first, well, really, I mean, the prophets of the Old Testament were pioneers in many ways, but these apostles, they are pioneers. And so you can write that as a synonym, uh, you know, as maybe a different way to think about it. These are the 12 pioneers called by God to take the gospel, the news of the kingdom, into pretty challenging and pretty difficult places. But I want to encourage you that not everybody's a pioneer. Not everybody's an apostle. 
Many of us in here are those settlers, like Paul had his young Timothy. After Paul would go through a city, plant a church, you know, get stoned or beaten or whatever, and then move on to the next place, well, then elders would be raised up. They're the settlers. Timothy would help uh, raise up the church there, strengthen the church. Those are settlers. So are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. That's what Paul would write. We don't all have the same calling. But here's what we have to do. As we recognize, as we come here today, because we live in a culture that is challenging what we do as church. Because we have church on TV. That's so much easier than going down to some building. And I could just have church the way I like it. You know, I just watch what I want to watch. And when I don't like the message of the pastor, I just click, turn him off. See, you guys can't do that to me. You're stuck here. And, and there is this movement to turn away from what we call the church. And it breaks my heart when I read these passages. Because look at the ground that was broken by these apostles so that we could participate in what is called church. The church. It's us. It's me and you. And now we take it for granted. And many have turned away and are turning away for various reasons that I understand. None of them good. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2. So now you Gentiles, that's us non-Jews, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. You see, what we do here was built on, had to have a foundation. It had a foundation not just in the prophets of the Old Testament, but in the apostles that we're reading about right here. The foundation of your house, sometimes you forget it's there, right? And when's the last time you went to the kitchen and said, ah, oh, so thankful for our foundation. What's for dinner? You know, I'm just, you, you, we forget about it. And so as we read this, because, you know, not all of this is something we experience in our day and age, but I think it's important to look back and thank God for the people that have gone before us and laid the foundation. So beginning in chapter 10, verse 16, we read, Behold... I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That doesn't sound good. I don't know about you, but when you think about sheep, now, now let me put this another way. You could say, I am, Jesus says, I'm sending you as prey into the midst of the predators. Yikes. I'm thinking, Jesus, I thought you loved us. You don't often see the prey. Sheep are prey animals. Wolves are predators. Sheep don't have much in the way of defense. I mean, they, they don't have any fangs. They don't have claws. You know, they're flight animals. They flee. That's how they protect themselves. Wolves are predators. Big fangs, big claws, really fast, very scary to sheep. But now here go the sheep. Now, and notice, they're not just apostles, but they're sheep also. They're sheep going after sheep. And that's pretty smart. I think who better to lead sheep to the shepherd than other sheep? So they, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst or into the middle of the wolves. And I can imagine them all clumped together. Okay, guys, we can do it. I know we can do it. Let's go forward. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Because you are prey animals. And because we don't play the game like the wolves do. They don't play by a set of moral rules like we do. We can't just decide to lie or manipulate. He says, be harmless as doves or guileless, 
uh, without lying, without deception. So we can't change our M.O. in the way we operate as sheep going out in the midst of wolves. We can't all of a sudden decide we're going to grow fangs for a few days and tear that person up and then we'll we'll still be sheep. You see, we, we have a certain way. That's not who we are. We're not wolves. We're sheep. And so we don't have to check our brains at the door, though. He says, therefore, be wise as serpents. And sometimes we get this idea that, some, that wisdom, well, we can't really use wisdom because we're walking by faith and not by sight. And walking by faith doesn't mean walking stupidly or without wisdom. Um, wise as serpents. A friend of mine, uh, they were hiking and, and came across a, a creek that they were, had to go across. And there was a snake with a rainbow trout in its mouth. And I saw the picture of it, and I was impressed. Why? Because I go fishing, and I've got poles and lures and bait and time and two arms and two legs, and I can't catch a fish. And here's a snake. When you don't have arms and legs, you've got to be pretty smart. You have to be wise and patient and all those things. So here's this snake, no arms, no legs, and he catches a fish and puts me to shame. I'm thinking, how does he do it? Because of the situation, because of the odds, because of the way that this is going to work, he tells his apostles, as he's sending them out, you have to be wise. Now, I did a little research on how sheep protect themselves. Number one way that sheep protect themselves is stick together. Jesus sends them out, not alone, he sends them out in groups, two by two as a minimum. You see, after sheep flee, they reform in a group and they, they look their predator down they want to see and keep an eye on who is preying on them or who wants to prey on them and they stick together their safety in numbers so as sheep as you go out into the world it's very important that you regather yourselves to face the, the predators to their safety in numbers and i feel for people and i fear for people when i see them begin to think they can do church on their own without i don't need i just need jesus i don't need people it's very, you know, who do the, will, the wolves go after? They go after the isolated or the weak sheep. I've never seen it go well for a sheep that isolated himself from the flock, ever, ever. So number one, safety in numbers, stick together. Number two, this is very interesting to me, sheep never walk in a straight line. Sheep tracks are never straight. The winding trails, they go back and forth, allow the sheep to observe their backside First with one eye and then the other. Sheep can spot dogs or other perceived forms of danger from 1,200 to 1,500 yards away. Football field, 100 yards. So what they do is they weave back and forth, and as they go left, they're kind of looking right. So I just put, watch your back. You know, that's one way to go out as a sheep among wolves. You've got to watch your back. You have to recognize what are potential dangers. You know, Billy Graham is a man that has done well in ministry. And you know, when he would be out doing a crusade, media would send women in trench coats to his door to try to knock on his door so that then Billy answers the door and a woman exposes herself to him and they get a picture so they can blaspheme him, so they can defame him. And so Billy Graham used to have someone else always answer the door for him. He never answered the door in his hotel room himself for that very reason. You see, that's called sanctified wisdom you can't read it in the first the first chapter of second hesitations you know it's not in there it's just called sanctified wisdom you know 
men counseling alone with a woman. It, you just don't do that. You know, you make sure. We're very careful in ministry, whether it's with money or with people. We try to be, you know, we try to be blameless as much as we can. To be smart, to think through where are the areas that Satan is going to try to attack this fellowship or this shepherd. And we try to minimize those. We watch our backs. And so it's smart for you as a sheep. Just watch your back. Be smart. Think about the things that you do and how you do them. The final way is that sheep have excellent senses and um, they can direct their ears to any direction that the sound is coming from and they are very sensitive to what different predators smell like. And so the final thing I put for, for keeping yourself safe as a sheep going out among wolves is to know your enemy. You've got to know what your enemy smells like. You know, you get involved with something, you go, what? This doesn't smell right. Maybe this is a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a duck. It's a duck. But sometimes we can be deceived. You know, the ministers of Satan disguise themselves as ministers of light. They carry Bibles and they wear suits and they call themselves apostles and they call themselves the prophets and all these things. But then ultimately their, their goal is to feed on sheep. So you've got to know your enemy. You've got to know what, um, what wolves do and how they walk and what they eat and all that kind of thing. So be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. And there is in this this language of certainty, isn't there? They will. This is what will happen. It's not like, well, this might happen, so be careful if it does. Or just understand that these are the things that could happen. He says, when they do, beware of men, for they will. Jesus never promised them protection from these things. He doesn't say, but don't worry about it because I'm going to keep wolves away from you. That's not what he says. G.K. Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. And it's true, it's what we see. Uh, Beware of men, they will deliver you up to councils, there will be sort of these religious trials they, they will be convicted and found guilty and scourged, which is a, a beating with a whip uh, in their synagogues. They're going to be brought before governors and kings for my sake. How else would a fisherman get into a palace? I mean, think about it. He is sending out these 12 guys, fishermen, tax collectors, and all the rest. And they're going to end up before, with an audience before governors and kings, it's amazing where God takes you when you make yourself available to him, when you follow him. And what's their motivation? Why, why is this going to happen? He says, it's for my sake. These things are going to happen not for your sake, not to be popular or to win friends and influence people and all those things. But these are the things for my sake, not so you can be happy. Not for future generations, although it will benefit them. Not for the benefit of the whole world, but that will be true too. Not for rewards in this life. It's also not as a punishment to you. But you're doing it for my sake as a testimony to who? To them. Sometimes we need to reassess why things happen to us in our lives. Because as soon as something we perceive as negative happens, 
we wonder, where is God? Where is, how could he let this happen to me? But think about it. What if there is a, a doctor, a nurse on that cancer unit that needs the gospel? What if there is someone where you work that needs the gospel? And you find yourself there going, oh, if the Lord loved me, he'd certainly put me somewhere else besides this. But maybe he has you. See, when God needs a witness, he, there, folks, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. We are it. <laughs> we are plan A. When God needs a witness, he uses a man or a woman. Wherever he needs to send them. I think of uh, Chuck Colson and his prison ministry after the Watergate fallout and being convicted. And he then has a heart to go back and, and begin prison ministry. And, and many, many, many different people through the ages that have been used right where they are to speak. And that's the thing we have to do. He says, when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. You see, you should speak. Ultimately, yes, our lives are a witness. The way we live, the way we treat people, how we act, how we behave. But eventually, you're going to have to say something. When they deliver you up, notice when, he says, do not worry about both how and what you should speak. Now, remember, are these guys trained orators? I mean, have they been to classes in seminary on hermeneutics? And I don't even know who hermeneutics is. Got no training or education. They're not, they haven't spent months preparing, learning, studying. So no doubt, you know, when he's telling them, look, you're going to be before kings and governors. How many of you are afraid of public speaking? Yeah, me too. That's true. I, I've told the story. I used to wear shorts when I preached. I had to stop because my knees were going up and down like this. Everybody could see. So I started wearing long pants and I get nervous. And no doubt these guys did too. This is not our thing, Jesus. That's not new. You know, that when you are afraid to speak and to be connected to Jesus, that's not new. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, God said to Jeremiah, this young man, he said, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I called you to be a prophet to the nations. And you know what Jeremiah said? Uh, I'm just a youth. I can't speak. He said, behold, I can't speak. I'm a youth. And what a great message for our young folks too. Jeremiah was a young person. And yet he too could be used to speak. And so there was this no doubt, this fear that Jesus could understand in them. You know, if God is really with us, then why are we in this spot? Why have we been arrested? Why have we been scourged? Why have we been put in this place? And you can think, God, God is, where is God now? But look at the next verse. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. This is why he says, don't worry about how or what. Because at that time, we always want to know ahead of time, don't we? We want to know well beforehand. Jesus, give me the manuscript. I'll carry it in my pocket. And then when the time comes, I can crack it open and I can speak to the king or to the governor or to the city council or to the board of supervisors or whoever it might be. But it's in that, they don't have, they're in a place where they don't have time to prepare. They don't have time, they, they don't know who they're going to be speaking to or what the situation is going to be. They have to trust. They have to trust. 
And maybe there's been a time in your life where you've been in an unexpected circumstance or situation. You've gotten into a conversation with somebody and, and you start speaking and all of a sudden you're going, man, where did that thought come from? I don't even know. I haven't thought about that in years. I don't even know why I said that. And if you've ever been used by God in that way, if you've ever given him, you know, we are his lock, stock and barrel. We don't have the choice to say with our mouths what we want to say. We say what he tells us to say. We don't have the choice to run people down. We do it wrongly, but it's not really our mouth to use. This is, these are his hands. This is his mouth. These are his eyes to see what he wants me to see. And so it comes time and we, we speak to someone. We go, oh, that is so exciting. When God uses you that way and you see just something you've said impact another person's life. If you've never been in that situation, man, it is, it's challenging sometimes. But boy, when you see God use you that way, it's exciting. Proverbs 16.1 says, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So is this, okay, so the Lord is going to speak through me. God who is in me is going to speak through me. So I cannot even bother reading my Bible ever. I just, God's going to speak right through me. No, he, he, he accesses that which you have put there. And he calls it, the Holy Spirit calls that then out. You know, maybe you've been like, to a Bible study that morning or that afternoon, and then you go out to dinner that night and you meet somebody, and that whatever verse you were studying, whatever thought, then that God uses that right away, and you get to just share that with someone that you meet. How many times has that ever happened to anybody in here? Happens all the time. Or you hear something on the radio, listening to a sermon, and it just impacts you, and then later on that day you're in a conversation, and someone's just hopeless. And something you heard that morning applies to their situation, you get to be a, a tool in the hand of God. God doesn't just use this loudmouth pastor or these apostles. He wants to use you in the same way. See, it's not a matter of your skill. It's a matter of your heart's preparation and the gifting of God, the, w- the willingness to be used by God in that way. And you're not always going to know ahead of time. So notice now we go on. There's a disruption in the family by being an apostle, by serving Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all men. So this is more. Family is hard enough, isn't it? Now, in some countries, if you're Hindu or Muslim, now in 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 uh, Muslim countries, that's this is what happens to you if you convert to, to christianity your family disowns you and oftentimes you are arrested and put in jail and possibly killed for your conversion hindu countries definitely disowned by the family met a young man in nepal that had become become a christian was being used by god uh, to run a christian radio station his family had disowned him when he became a christian his whole village had disowned him he had to leave went to bible school Ends up then praying for his village, goes back, shares the gospel with them. He now lives in a Christian village, or at least his family's village has now been uh, converted. But initially had to leave his family, had to leave his home. Uh, well, we don't have to deal with that, you might say. Well, maybe not so directly. Maybe some of you come from a Catholic background and you're sitting here today in a Protestant church. And when your family heard you were going to some Protestant church, they thought you were surely going to hell. Because Catholic is the only way, and that's the way it should be. And so you took a little flack. 
for saying, you know, I'm going to go to this Protestant church. That, you know, I'm hearing the word and, and that's what, what I feel is necessary. Or maybe you left a family church to pursue where the Lord was taking you. You know, don't we, we get kind of marginalized in our families, don't we? When we're, when we're the only Christian in our family, you know, they, they like us to pr- be, well, Steve, you're, you're the, you know, the Christian guy. Why don't you pray for the Thanksgiving dinner? You know, they, that's what they want us around for, just to pray. But then they don't understand us most of the time. We're just not understood. Uh, if you've grown up in a Christian family, maybe you don't know what that is like. But uh, for those of us that are in, we may be that sole light in our family. And so we understand, maybe not to this level, but we understand the difficulty, the disruption even in family. But we'll be hated not just in family, but by all for my name's sake. Again, Christianity is not a popularity concert, um, or popularity contest, I should say. I don't know what I'm saying this morning. Don't, don't pay any attention to me. But I do know this. This is why we need each other. This is why it's so important. That there is love in the church. Because you see we become followers of Jesus Christ. And we forsake the world. Those friends we used to have. That group we used to run with. And all the things that they did. And we say oh you know we're forsaking that to follow Jesus Christ. Then you come to church and you find that church doesn't accept you either maybe. And then where are you? You know the families disowned you because you got saved. And now everybody hates you. All your friends hate you because you got saved. Or they won't hang out with you anymore. They just talk bad about you. And then you try to. Hopefully, there's love among others like you, but then you find that people in church are biting and devouring one another. You see, this is why the fellowship of believers is so very important. Because out there, we're not so popular all the time. Now, in America, it's not so bad. But that's why around the world, when it comes to church gathering together, they'll travel hours They'll meet in hidden places in the middle of the night because the fellowship with someone else that believes like I believe is so sweet and necessary to sustain you in a world where you are alone. Does that make sense? So it is absolutely because of these things. This is why the love and the grace and the acceptance and the brotherhood and the fellowship of sufferings is so important in here. We cannot, we must not bite and devour one another rather encourage and support one another so we we go through these things and he says but he who endures to the end will be saved and so this is uh, this is the only thing we are uh, told to do other than going out is to endure this is the question you know there is that soil the second soil the soil of the heart that is the shallow soil and when the trials come when the sun beats down on it when people persecute or when people talk bad or when people criticize or critique, that because there was no root, it shriveled up and died. And that seed in that soil does not endure. And this is what Jesus says, to him who who endures will be rescued. Be rescued. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes it was not necessary that they become martyrs and die all 12 well minus the apostle john who merely was boiled in oil the others were all killed for their faith killed for what they believed post-resurrection the apostle paul if you read the book of acts you know he gets saved in chapter 9 and by the end of the chapter he's already had two attempts on his life 
and been lowered down through the wall. These are the guys, the people that withstood great odds and great persecution so we could come here today and sing, Holy is the Lord, or in Christ alone, so we could enjoy this fellowship. It's, it's unbelievable what they went through. Acts 13, they're expelled from Antioch. They shake off the dust, just like Jesus said. And Acts 14, they go into Iconium, begin to make some progress there. Persecution begins, and Paul flees to the next city. So there's no you know, particular uh, need or necessity of dying for your faith. He says, look, if they're persecuting there, then, then flee. Go to the next place. If your neighbors don't want to hear it. You know, I had this, uh, was out for a walk this morning. Just out going for a walk early in the morning is one of my practices that I do. And I had this mosquito just buzzing in this ear. And, you know, you kind of swat at him this way. And then he came around, he's buzzing in this ear. And I swat at him that side. And then finally things heated up a little. I started to get mad at this little guy because he would not leave me alone. So I got serious about, you know, trying to, where is he trying to get him? And, and I, I don't know if he was smart enough to leave or not. But if you go in, if, you, if you're sharing with somebody and they just, you know, they, eh, just, you're just annoying and a pain. And eventually they start to get a little bit upset with you. You know what? Flee to the next city. Go to the next person. Go talk to someone else. You know, let, because otherwise they're going to think that, you know, Christians are just a pain in the neck. And that's the, we're, not, we're not to be a pain in the neck. Jesus didn't come to condemn people. He came to save them. And some people, you know, darkness came into the world, or light came into the world, but the darkness just didn't appreciate the light. And so not everybody appreciates. Let's keep going on. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub or Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung, uh, it, was a, it was a knock, it was a um, derogatory term, then how much more will they call those of his household? And it's a basic principle here. A disciple is not above his master uh, or teacher. A servant is not above his master. The, the disciple or the servant should not be expecting to be more highly esteemed or receive better treatment than the master. That just makes sense. It's a common sense kind of thing. So in the same way that uh, that that is a truth, that if we are followers of Jesus, and they persecuted him, and they crucified him, and they spoke derogatory names about him, then why would we expect that they would leave us alone? That somehow they're going to esteem us better than Christ. Because we are connected to him. And so it's surprising when we see the reaction of Christians in America to persecution, to when, when we don't get our way, when, when someone uh, speaks bad about Christianity. You know, we should not be surprised when these things happen. It's, you know what, because we're connected to Christ. And it's what they did to him, and it's what we'll experience. Too. Because we have this, this idea that our, we have these rights, right? We, we've got certain rights. You know, these, it's our right to do this, it's our right to do that. Well, what does Jesus say here? Look, I am love incarnate, and they nailed me to a tree as a guilty criminal. I am love incarnate. Why does the world not want love? I don't, I don't understand it. But I know that, that this is the way, that, that the world has its ways, and the church has its ways, and the wor- we are the stench of death to some. To some, we are the, the fragrance of life, and to others, we are the smell of death. And I, you know, 
It's the way it is. And I think, I hope one of the things that we're getting as we go through this is just a little reality check for ourselves because I think we lose sight of this, don't we, church? I think we've forgotten some of these things and who we are in Christ. And man, the funny thing about it is there's nowhere else I'd rather be. You know, if I'm in Christ and I'm the stench of death, if I'm in Christ and I'm a fool for his sake, then so be it. Because, you know, I stand with Peter and I say, where else would I go? Only you have the words of eternal life. You know, if, if, it, do we, if, we, if, if church was not it, I mean, if Christ was not it, what else would you do with your life? I mean, what else would really have? I'd be a soccer dad and I'd be destroying my poor little son's mind by pushing and pushing and pushing him to succeed, succeed, succeed. That's who I would be, I guarantee you. It's just I know my makeup. I know who I am. And I would push and success oriented and all those things. And, and then at, I would find in that no real eternal significance. And so, yes, this is how it is. But for centuries, this is what the church has endured. Why? Because it's true and it's right. And Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And there is no other thing in which you can find eternal significance, value or truth. Period. You know, life is not about what we live are willing to live for. It's about what we're willing to die for. So as disciples, you know, this is this is what the treatment that Jesus got. This is the treatment that we should expect and understand when it comes. Therefore, he says, do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. That again speaks of the sweetness of personal devotional time. There is just a sweetness in you getting alone with the Lord. And it says, whatever I tell you in the dark. You know, when uh, I know that what, one of the things that happens here on Sunday morning is, here I am preaching, and, and you've got a voice in your head leading you to other passages. So you've been checked out for like the last 20 minutes, and you're somewhere in the book of Ezekiel. You don't know how you got there or why you're there, but you're just you're following a rabbit trail. Because the Lord is speaking to you, and that's okay. That's, I was just sitting, you know, and I'm all over the Bible. Oh, the pastor said this, and then that leads me to this thought, and that leads me to this thought, and then I'm going all over my Bible, and I have no idea where that guy is, but I know where the Lord's got me. Anybody do that? Yeah, I know, you're afraid to admit it to me. I understand, I know how it is. I used to do it too. But whatever I tell you in the dark, God wants to speak to you in the dark. He wants to speak to you in the quiet places. The problem is we're never in that place, in our prayer closet, or in a place to hear from him. He wants to speak to you there, and then he wants to give you something that you can then use for yourself, but then also share with others. He says, if I tell you in the dark, you speak it in the light. If I tell you in private, you speak it in public. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to defeat both soul and body in hell. That is a fascinating passage, isn't it? What we learn there is there is a difference. There is the body and there is the soul. Soul is just the word uh, suke. It means breath, literally. And if you've ever watched, if you've ever been around an animal or a person who has died, you can almost watch the life the breath, the suke, the soul, 
leave the body. You, you can, it's almost perceptible. Living on a farm, we've had many animals die, and I've been there with the vet putting them down, and uh, some of you have been with loved ones or in other places, and you can almost, it's tangible. You can almost watch it happen. And he says, all these, the people that persecute you, the people that come down on you, the most they can do to you is they can kill your body. That's the most that can ever happen. It's the worst it can ever be. But they cannot kill your soul, which the Bible says is eternal. Now the question is, where will your soul exist eternally? It says, but rather fear him who is able to defeat both soul and body in hell. You see, that's what hell is. It is a dead soul and a dead body. Heaven is a new body and a living soul. Our soul, our, our life is, you know, the Bible says when Christ, who is our life, returns. He is our life. So the worst, he says, that can happen is your body is killed, but your soul is set free to be with the Lord. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so as they go out, they could be thinking, well, are we just expendable? I mean, are we, you know, Lord, what's this all about? Are we just kind of fodder for the wolves to feed on? And he says, no way. You are very valuable. See, a sparrow was considered an animal of little or almost no value. They, they weren't a, you could buy a sparrow for almost nothing, a couple of pennies. Sparrows weren't, sparrows weren't very uh, valuable. And even a sparrow, God says, not one of them falls to the ground. Not one of them dies apart from my knowledge of it, apart from my sovereignty in it. And then when it comes to us, he says, even our, his knowledge of us is so intimate. His knowledge of, knowledge of us is so personal that every hair on your head, he knows exactly where it is. Now, and I just look at this. If he says the sparrows fall to ground and he knows it, I figure he knows if he's got all my hairs numbered, he knows when they fall to the ground too. And, you know, he's had a lot of mathematics to do in my life over the last 10 years. Uh, you know, the, the Palmyra Bridge, they, uh, the, there's a new bridge there. There was a steel bridge before that, and before that there was a wooden bridge. And maybe some of you know the history. They had all the pieces of the bridge numbered so that when, a, you know, when the river would, would raise in its height, would wash the bridge out, they'd gather up the pieces downstream, bring them back upstream, and rebuild the bridge because every piece was numbered. And so I'm hopeful that all my hairs are numbered so that in heaven God can put them back together again. That's kind of my hope as I read this. But he does, he, he says, therefore, do not fear, because you are of more value than many sparrows, than many sparrows. So you know, just as we close, that, that's all. We'll, we won't do the uh, next verse. We'll close there. Um, so in one sense, he tells his apostles, look, I'm not sending you out as sheep among wolves because I don't value you. I'm not asking you to do this because I don't care about you. I'm asking you to do this because I love the world. And I need some courageous, pioneer-type people to risk and sacrifice so that other sheep can be gathered in. So if you ever question your value, and this is one of the things, 
people have lost the value of their lives. They don't understand because they don't know God. And life is just something that, that just kind of getting through. And so you have to hear what God is saying to you. That your life, their lives, although God may you know, have you in a unique place as a pioneer in a certain area. It's not because he doesn't love you. He is with you. He'll speak through you. He will use you. And if you endure to the end, you will be what? Saved. Not lost. Not forgotten. But saved. Let's pray. Father, just as we close today, and I pray for the pioneers in here, Lord. I pray for those that know their pioneers and that you are desiring to use in a pioneering work. Just as you use these apostles and prophets. Father, I also pray for the settlers. That we would work hand in hand with the pioneers. As they till up new ground in new areas from Colombia to Ukraine. To next door. That others may come along and, and build on that and build that up in water and plant and nourish and protect. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ that while we might be unappreciated and unpopular in some of our the groups that we're familiar with, Lord, thank God for the church where the walls have been broken down, where there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor black, nor white, nor high social economic group, nor low social economic group. But Lord, we are all one in Christ. Brothers and sisters in the family and the household of God. Father, I pray that our love to one another would abound more and more and all the more as the day is approaching, Lord. I pray for your spirit to minister in this fellowship in a powerful way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.